Welcome to the Bear Marriage Podcast. I'm Sheila Ray Gregoire from BearMarriage.com, where we like to talk about healthy, evidence-based biblical advice for your marriage and your sex life. And I am joined today by my daughter, Rebecca Lindenbach. Hello. The weirdest mother-daughter duo, because we talk about sex all the time, which is just odd. Yep. But we hopefully do it with class. And today, you are, you are looking at me funny, but, but here, bear with me, because today on episode 194 of the Bear Marriage Podcast, we are going to ask the question, and it's an awkward question, so this is just an awkward podcast. Yeah. What if some marriage authors don't actually know the difference between women's arousal and women's willingness to have sex? Yeah. What if there's a real lack of knowledge here? Yeah. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. Before we go into that, a couple of things. If you'll notice, I said episode 194. And 194 is very close to... 200. 200, which is coming up. 200 is going to be our last episode of the season before we take a month off Mm -hmm. mid-July. But episode 200, we want to make it a really fun one. And so we are going to do a Brio Magazine pajama party. So for any of you who grew up with Brio Magazine, just like... Rebecca did, because who bought you the subscription, Becca? You did. I bought you the subscription. Yes. (laughs) To the magazine that told you that you are a walking temptation... To be used by Satan. To be used by Satan. Yes. All right. And so we are going to read some gems like that for you in our flannel pajamas Mm -hmm. and invite you to do that. We're going to have some Facebook Lives on it. So we're going to have more information about that coming soon. So um, check out... If you want to stay informed about all this stuff, please sign up to our email list. The link is in the podcast notes. We'd love to have you there. Um, Another big uh, announcement just as, as always a special shout out to our patrons who have helped us fund our research have mm-hmm. helped us fund the research for she deserves better and just create the most fun place to hang out on the internet where we get the weirdest questions the weirdest memes shared and just some <laughs> honest discussion yeah so, every now and then there gets to be like a meme thread or everyone just mm-hmm. shares random stuff they've seen around the internet that somewhat pertains to what we talk about they get pretty entertaining yes it really does and so um you can join us for as little as five dollars a month and get behind the scenes access while you help fund what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that is at patreon.com slash bare marriage and you can find us there. Okay, so there's been a lot going on on the internet over the last few months. Yes. And the question that appears to me as I look at a lot of different people who are talking about sex is do they see sex almost exclusively from a male perspective, Mm -hmm. from a male-centric perspective. And to figure that out, I thought what we could do first is to talk about the sexual response cycle. Yes. And how it might look if you're trying to see sex as something which is mutual, intimate, pleasurable for both, as we talk about in The Great Sex Rescue, Mm -hmm. versus sex is merely intercourse. Yes, as in do you get it or do you not? Right. And a little bit of a disclaimer, we're going to get really graphic in this podcast. I mean, we talk about sex all the time, so we're usually graphic, but we're going to get like super graphic because we're going to be talking about um, some sex advice given by Emerson Egrich, author of Love and Respect, and some very graphic stuff given by Josh Butler in his Beautiful Union. Ironically, euphemistically, you'll see what we're talking about. And so just just a disclaimer for this podcast. So here's what here and and we've got for those of you watching on YouTube, we do have a graphic of this that we have created. Mm -hmm. Um, I did not actually create this. I I created the words and Mm -hmm. another wonderful graphic designer created the graphic. It's fantastic. (laughs) It's fantastic. And some of you may may laugh at it. But (laughs) but we want to show the two different um, ways, scenarios that sex can go. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk about 
the different sexual states that women can be in. So where do we start? Well, the first thing is that you can be actively in a mood where you do, where you want to be not having sex. Right. Like so you want just... to actively not have sex. Yeah, because some people, well, I don't really feel like having sex right now, but that's different from I want to not have sex yes, right now. Yes, like, <laughs> oh, I was going to watch eight, se- eight, eight episodes of a soap opera in a row while mm-hmm. I eat popcorn, mm-hmm. like, by the handful and that's what I want to do, but like, you know, maybe we could get 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 funky with it. Like there's there's that mood. And then there's the no. I need to watch my show. I need to eat my popcorn. And I need to be left alone right now. Yes. And those are two different things. Yes. So the first one is someone might actively want to not have sex. Yeah. Okay, so do not and so let's call that anything there is the consent line. Yeah. Okay? So that is like, do not even try. Yeah. Let them say no. Yeah. Now we're going to list a whole lot of other things. And of course, at any point, consent can be revoked. Yeah, at any point, you can say no. But like, if, if she actively or he actively does not want to have sex, then you're, you're not going to try. Okay, but but here, they haven't said no. They're just kind of neutral. Mm-hmm. They're yeah. just neutral. They just haven't thought about it. They haven't thought about it. Yeah. They're, They're like not- turning on the Netflix, but they haven't actually considered be like, no, I don't want to have sex. Tonight. They're like, I'm just going to watch Netflix. Right. You know, or or maybe they're, you know, putting the clothes away from the laundry. Whatever, yeah. whatever. Maybe he's, yeah. you know, whatever. So yeah. they're just, they're neutral. Yeah. And so when someone is neutral, it is okay to like say, hey, you know, can I, yes. can I, can we work on some relational connecting? Yeah. And so to get to the next step, which is when you're like willing to try something, yeah. willing to start affection, then yeah, like let's talk. Let's go for a walk. Let's connect relationally in some way, whatever that might look like for you. And so then you get to this interesting state. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And this is where our lines start to diverge. Yeah. Because you can have a woman who might, you know, and and we're going to, we're going to use women here because we're talking about male centric sex, but obviously there can be some men who are less, who are more hesitant to have sex. We're really talking about the typical Christian marriage advice that's given, which Mm -hmm. presents a woman with very receptive libido or responsive libido Mm -hmm. and a man who has very spontaneous libido. So that's what we're going with because that's what the advice is all about. So we're trying to figure out what's going on here. Right. Okay. So you have someone who's neutral and then you have this relational connecting so that they are willing to start yeah the question is what are they willing to start and this is where things get tricky so we're going to talk about what it's supposed to look like first yeah and then we're going to talk about what it actually does what it actually does look like for a lot of these authors okay so okay so she's she's willing to start affection so now what you're going to have is you're going to have like some kissing some you need to not make eye contact with me while we're talking about this like seriously so we're gonna we're gonna pretend there's a plexiglass screen here okay then you know you get to some some kissing some touching you know just basic touch stuff and that can get excitement going where the breathing starts to get you know a little bit heavier you're starting to get tingly you're getting the physiological signs of arousal exactly and then you get into desire to have sex now for some people the desire comes before excitement depends whether you're responsive or spontaneous so whichever whichever way it comes but whether you're spontaneous or responsive excitement and arousal still are two different things yes so excitement is like you're just starting to get the physiological signs once she's actually excited then you can go for the erogenous zones 
All right. <laughs> like, don't touch the erogenous. Don't go straight for the clitoris. I've said mm -hmm. this so many times. You go straight for the clitoris when she's not even excited. It feels like a pap smear. Yeah. Okay. It is not a fun experience. And a lot of women think they don't like foreplay. Yeah. Like I've heard from so many women who say, I just don't like, you know, <laughs> clitoral stimulation. And it's like, yeah, because he's going for it when you're like at yeah. zero. There's a lot of situations where we hear from people. It's like, yeah, if that were happening, that does not sound pleasant. I'm going to no. be honest. Exactly. <laughs> that exactly. does not sound great. So you've got excitement and then and from excitement, then you can start more intense stimulation. Then you get to arousal. And then from arousal, you can do lots of, you know, teasing, changing things up, lots of stuff. And then you get to plateau where you're almost at orgasm. And at plateau, you just want the same stimulation, same depth, same speed, same everything, so that you can go over the edge. And that's what you're looking at. So you have excitement, arousal, plateau, orgasm, and then resolution, recovery, whatever you call it after that. All mm -hmm. right. So that's, that's what it's supposed to look like. So she's neutral to willing to start affection to excitement, etc. And at any point, of course, she can say, you know what, this isn't working for me. This isn't really working for me. I'd like to stop and she can stop. And the more she feels able to stop, this is what we you found in the focus groups, yeah. actually, is that that is the key to woman's orgasm and libido is if she knows she can stop at any point, then it's much easier for her. Yeah, for a lot of women that we talked to, sex was not a pleasurable experience until their husbands gave them explicit permission. Like, you can say no. I want you to say no if you don't want to do something. Mm -hmm. And because these women had heard messages, like we talked about in The Great Sex Rescue, like, you know, wives, you can't say no to your husbands. If you turn your husband down, then you're sending him to the arms of another woman or mm -hmm. to pornography, whatever mm -hmm. it was. And so their husbands had no idea they believed this. And so then when they said, no, 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 I only want you if you want me. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't want a begrudging you. I don't want a pressured you. I don't want anything like that. I just want us to have a good time together. So I'd rather just not have sex as much. Right. You know, they said that and that that was a really big difference for them. Yeah. And that's why this is so important because a lot of times what we're about to talk about now is talking about the other side of it, where it's like, what happens when we don't see sex as something that a woman actually does, mm -hmm. but rather as something that she allows him to do to her. Yeah, and that's and a big the difference. Yeah. Okay, now, and I want to I want to say too that these states are physiological states. Yes, they're not mental states. I no. mean, the mental state is there, the desire to have sex, but these yeah. are actually physiological states. If she, orgasm is a physiological thing, yeah, you that can happens. track these things. Like you can physiologically track these. Yes, and so these are all distinct phases. So. You know, during excitement, her heartbeat is starting to go a little bit faster. Um, she might start to feel some tingling. During arousal, her clitoris actually gets erect. So women get erections too. Um, the areola swells, your nipples get erect, etc. And then during plateau, the clitoris actually retracts flat against the body so that it can get more stimulation um, directly from intercourse, whatever, or any other kind of stimulation. Anyway, but these are distinct physiological things. So different things happen to the body, you know, lubrication, etc. And I talk about this a lot in the Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex. Mm -hmm. I define, I, we talk about this at length, more so than in the Great Sex Rescue. The Great Sex Rescue, we were trying to well, we're rescuing fix. people from the bad teachings, right. right? Helping people see where has this gone wrong. Right. But in the Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex, we actually explained how sex works. And so these are all distinct 
phases physiologically and you do not get to orgasm except through these phases yeah <laughs> okay like yeah. You and don't... some people will get through them faster than others yes for some people they're really fast yeah and sometimes even the same person can take different lines of time based on where she is in her hormonal cycle mm-hmm. based on what's been going on based on her stress levels based on the relationship based on what type of uh activity they are doing yeah um like a lot there's some women who can orgasm in under a minute in some ways and it takes like over 45 minutes another way or something or depending yes. on the time so like there's this stuff can vary but the thing that doesn't vary is that you do have to actually go through the phases you're not going to orgasm unless you're aroused yes you may only need to be aroused for 20 seconds Yes. But you do need to be aroused first. You do need to go through that physiological yeah. stage. Okay, so that is what the sexual response cycle looks like for women. And the other really important thing to say is this isn't actually just for women. Mm-hmm. This is the exact same cycle that men go through. Mm-hmm. The only way that men and women are different in this is that after the orgasm phase, women can go right back to the plateau mm-hmm. or have rapid uh, orgasms in a row, whereas men are just done. Yeah, they have a refractory period yeah. where um, uh, stimulation of the penis becomes very uncomfortable um, and you normally can't get a full erection. Some some men can keep their erection after orgasm for a time, but normally it takes about between 30 and 60 minutes to yeah. to recover. So, yeah, and, and so that's that's the only difference. So this idea that, you know, well, women and men's sexuality is just totally different is not true in terms of the experience of arousal. We actually mm-hmm. both go through the same phases. Yes. Like for women, excitement and arousal actually do look quite different. Mm-hmm. Um, for men, you kind of get that erection right away and, and it doesn't automatically look different. But you will notice that the penis does get larger, it gets harder, mm-hmm. etc. as you go through these phases. Okay, so these are all separate physiological phases. They are not mental phases. Yes. So while the, the mind is involved in it, and obviously she needs to be willing to have sex and she needs to want to have sex. And if she doesn't want to have sex, because you can be aroused and not want to have sex. Yeah. That's called arousal non-concordance. <laughs> so obviously she does, you, she does need to be mentally there. And if she's not, if she says, no, you need to stop. Mm-hmm. But these are physiological stages. What we're saying is that it's not in her head. Exactly. Things actually have to happen. Yes. Now, what happens though, if you see sex not as something which is supposed to be pleasurable for both and mutual, but as merely intercourse? Mm -hmm. Because remember that we found in our survey of 20,000 women for the Great Sex Rescue, um, followed by our survey of men for the Good Guy's Guide to Great Sex, that we have a 47 point orgasm gap. Yeah. Where 95% of men almost always or always reach orgasm in a given sexual encounter compared to just 48% of women. Mm -hmm. And of the women who do reach orgasm, only 40% can do so with virtually no foreplay. Yes. And the vast, like most women who reach orgasm actually find other routes to orgasm easier. Yeah. And many women cannot reach orgasm through intercourse. Yes. At all. Even with a lot of foreplay. Okay. So for women, there are other routes to orgasm that are more reliable and many women prefer those other routes. Yeah. And other studies have found too that the most successful couples in terms of like sexual satisfaction do a lot more than just intercourse. Mm -hmm. And intercourse is kind of not the main event. Yes. um, For their sex lives. Uh, and so that's because it, when you, um, sorry, when we're talking about like heterosexual couples, right? Because mm-hmm. like, I think when we're talking about sex in this context, often it becomes this idea of a green light, red light, mm-hmm. right? It's like, can I, can I just, can I have sex or can I not? And it's like, hey, no, but we're, we're talking about an experience here that's for both of you. Yeah. 
right? Yeah. And so I think when that's why it makes sense that more sexually satisfied couples are likely actually doing more than just the thing that is easiest for him, mm-hmm. um, but are actually making sure that she's orgasming as well. Right. But but because we tend to see sex as just intercourse, which, by the way, is a very male-centric way of seeing mm-hmm. sex, <laughs> then we can start to think that the, that the, 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 the way sex should go is not necessarily through those stages, but that all you really need to do is get her willing to have intercourse. Yeah, because the only thing that matters is if he gets through the stages. <laughs> right. And so if that's the way you're seeing it, then what we're really working at is getting her willing to let him have sex with exactly. her. Exactly. She's the gatekeeper. Right. And so... The main aim for a guy is to get her willing to have sex so that he can have sex. Yeah. So it's not about all those stages for her. Mm-hmm. If it's really a male-centric thing, which it is in... Like every single... It's, it's bad. Yeah. In, the situation in, is bad. In a lot of couples, <laughs> yeah. then all, the only focus is willing to let him have sex. So I want to I show you what this sounds like. Yeah, so if you're watching this on YouTube or something, just go back and look at that graph again because it's on the screen now. Um, Mm -hmm. So instead of going through all these different phases where she's actually getting aroused and this is all Mm -hmm. seen as a part of sex, the focus is, okay, she said yes, so yes, I get to go have sex now, right? Mm -hmm. So we go straight from Mm -hmm. willingness to let him have sex to intercourse and orgasm for him. Right. Right? Because, and uh, remember, the average time that a man takes to orgasm is like less than three minutes Mm -hmm. um, through intercourse. The average time a woman takes to orgasm is 20 minutes or more. Mm -hmm. And so this is the problem. This is why we're saying it's male-centric. It's not that she doesn't enjoy intercourse. It's not that women don't enjoy intercourse. It's just that women take longer. And so if it's just about letting him do his thing, statistically speaking, she's incredibly unlikely to orgasm. Right. And we know from our stats that... It actually isn't expected mm-hmm. that she should orgasm because 72% of men mm-hmm. whose wives don't frequently orgasm yes. say that they do enough foreplay. Yeah. And so the question is like, what's enough? Yeah. You know, like it, it, we would find this ridiculous if we were like 72% of chefs mm-hmm. whose chicken comes out raw and frozen on the inside say that they cook their chicken for long enough. Yeah. Like we know that's ridiculous because we know right. what the metric is. The metric is you can't say that you cooked chicken if it's still not cooked. Same right. thing. You can't say that you're satisfied how much foreplay you did if she did an orgasm or something. Like something's wrong then. Yeah. Right? Like, but but we still have 72% of men saying they did enough foreplay and yeah. so do 50, 51% of women. Yeah. And so, you know, we don't even necessarily expect to orgasm. And I think a lot of the reason is because of the way we talk about sex. And here we are parachuting in just to say that if you're listening to this and you're saying, I don't want an orgasm gap, and I would actually like to figure out what all the fuss is about, and I would actually like to learn the difference between excitement, arousal, and plateau, yes, and orgasm, yeah. then please check out our orgasm course. It's evidence-based. <laughs> we go, we look through all the peer-reviewed research that we could find, or rather Rebecca did, <laughs> to write this course, um, and it's designed to help you, if you've never gotten there yet, figure out how to get there. There's also a men's edition for it, and you can find the link to it in the podcast notes, because seriously, this is something that you should should be experiencing in your marriage. And if you're not, then let's figure it out. 
So I want to, I want to um, put the spotlight on two different authors today, just as examples, mm-hmm. um, to go along with our thesis here, that the way that we talk about sex in the evangelical church is very male centric. Mm-hmm. So first of all, I just want to, I just want to play you a clip, um, from a podcast that Emerson Egrich did. And we actually played this clip or, or referred to it, um, I think about a year ago where we talked about how he didn't understand um, marital rape. Yeah. Because he had a a letter from a woman who really sounded like she was being coerced. And he said he praised her for being so obedient. Yeah. It was disgusting. Yeah. And then this is part of what he said. Here's the classic illustration that you turn on a woman sexually by not having anything to do with her sexually. (laughs) The irony of it all is that What turns a woman on sexually are the non-sexual things. This is a classic truth, an axiom, a basic principle. And gentlemen, if you've never learned that, I want you to trust me here. Don't listen to Hollywood that they're drooling, you know, and so on and so forth. Every three days uh, a month, you know, there's going to be that um, peaking of sexual interest because she can become pregnant. There are these sexual appetites. But, you know, we say 27 days out of the month, it's the relationship with you that excites her, not just raw sex. And so notice the things that turn her on. And it's so easy to do. Reading a book together, praying together, helping her with the household. Why is it that your wife wants you to vacuum? Um, It isn't necessarily because she's this domestic engineer who has a whip in hand and wants you to abide by every command she gives to you. Maybe she realizes that it's a sexual turn on to her. And so I want you to just be reminded here that it's the non-sexual things. And we're really we're really playing fast and loose with the word okay. turn on. Yeah, and we? then and then here again is how he ended the okay. podcast. Joining us uh, this week, any kind of final um, comments uh, today? The best way to turn your wife on sexually is not to try to turn her on sexually. Okay. Well, we'll see you next week. So that was his big advice. That was his big advice. Is don't his... try to turn on your wife. Now, here's my question. When you listen to what he's saying, yep. is he mixing up the stages? Oh, I mean, unless a woman is starting to literally like have her pupils dilate and be able and like have heavy breathing and increased va- like increased mm-hmm. heart rate and all these things when she's watching her husband read a book beside her. Mm-hmm. What I, I mean, we talked about this already, but like what what really seems like is happening is that what we're seeing is, um, okay, take, take water. Okay. We'll consider this water. Uh Let's go back to the, the arousal chart idea, right? The, I don't want to have sex right now is ice. Uh-huh. You want to get to steam eventually, right? right? That's right. like steam. We're boiling. We're we're a steam now. But what's happening is like, oh, he's being ha- he's being he's not yelling at me as much. <laughs> oh, look, he cleaned. Oh, look, we're spending time together. Oh, we're praying together. Okay, we're melting now, and it's like, oh my gosh, there's a little bit of water. We can have sex, like, <laughs> and we're not realizing. Wait a second, there's still a lot farther to go, right. and it's. It's like just that little tiny bit of melting is not the same thing as being turned on. Right. Because there's, there's, I think there's three different 
words that we are using synonymously here yes. that are not synonymous okay he's using arousal and being turned on as synonyms and first of all those are not even synonyms in the same way no, they kind of are they but kind of, i mean i i do turn on yeah. as excited but that's debatable but i think what he's really talking about is something else which is just willingness to let him have he's sex. just i think what's really happening is that from from what i've heard in my folks groups and just looking at the research and all the different stuff what i really think it sounds like is happening is is that these are husbands who are quote unquote putting in deposits to be able to make a withdrawal. Yeah. Right? Where it's like, okay, if he, okay, the wife is thinking, oh, I don't really want to, but he's been nice tonight and he's done the dishes, so I guess we might as well. Right? Like, I think that's really what it more sounds like. Mm-hmm. And I think that if you have never, the, the idea that, you know, women are only really going to want sex three days a month because they could get pregnant, we do know that women's sex drives um, right, raise around ovulation. Mm-hmm. We do know that. That's been pretty proven uh, over and over again. That does mm-hmm. not mean that women don't want sex the rest of the time. Yeah. The other thing, too, is remember, other research has found that if she has an orgasm the first time that she she has sex, like intercourse, mm-hmm. her rate of having a high libido is just as high as a man's. Mm-hmm. So if you are married to someone who didn't orgasm for the first bit of marriage, right? Mm-hmm. Like who didn't experience that and their libido is way lower, that isn't because they're a woman. It's because they didn't orgasm from the get-go. Mm-hmm. It's because their brain learned, hey, this isn't something that's really pleasant for me and so why would I put energy towards pursuing it exactly right and so this is something where we learn our bodies learn our brains learn and so if you're in a situation where you've learned that oh if I have sex he kind of treats me properly it becomes less about actual arousal and it becomes more about this feeling that oh he did x so now I have to put out y if I want to keep having x happen right but yeah and so what we have here is we have a man who has written the most used marriage material in North American churches, who really seems to not understand the female sexual response cycle. Yeah. Because there is no way that you can equate willingness to have, willingness to let him have sex with arousal. Those are two Mm -hmm. entirely different things. Okay, let's use another example. And this is from um, a huge controversial book mm-hmm. that came out in April yep. called Beautiful Union. And there's been a controversy around it online um, since March for very good reason. Yeah, very and good we're going to talk about some of that in a minute. Uh, but I, w- I want to jump in to where he talks about the sexual response cycle. Mm-hmm. Okay. So why don't you read this? Pa- so this is this is where he introduces the subject. Okay, Josh Butler says this. This doesn't mean women are less sexual than men, but rather that their sexual desire tends to work differently than men. To borrow language from Dr. Emily Nagoski, men's sexual desire tends to be more spontaneous, while women's tends to be more responsive. Meaning, husbands generally don't need much prodding to be in the mood. While individual experiences vary, on average, men initiate sex more often than women do. Wives, on the other hand, usually prefer to be romanced toward the bedroom. Okay, so what step in the timeline is he talking about Well, here? we're really talking before, like, we're talking kind of about excitement uh, a little mm-hmm. bit, but even before then. Yeah, we're, when we're, I think what he's talking about is, is going from, from um, neutral to willing, mm-hmm. willing to start affection. Okay, then I'll read the next paragraph. Why did God make it this way? Christian sex blogger Sheila Gregoire, so he's quoting me, has mm-hmm. a theory observing how men can often climax quickly through intercourse alone, while women generally require foreplay and external stimulation. And he quotes me saying, 
That means for women to feel pleasure, men have to slow down and think about their wives. Sex is best when it isn't just animal style where you simply have intercourse with no foreplay because that won't feel good for her. Men have to learn to be unselfish if sex is going to work well for both partners. God deliberately made our female body so that if we're going to feel good during sex, men have to take time to serve women. Mm-hmm. Okay, so right here, what step am I talking about? You're talking about both excitement and arousal. Yeah, yeah. and even into, and into orgasm. orgasm. Yeah, okay, like the whole so, thing. So I'm talking about all that. Yeah. But right after this, he this is how he frames it. A wife's desire points to the gospel. In other words, her desire to be romanced is iconic of the church, yeah. which has had the flames of our desire stoked by the passion of Christ's sacrificial devotion towards us. Yeah, and, and once again, he's talking about Christ's devotion, his sacrifice. And and this is, first of all, one of the reasons why Butler's book is getting so much controversy is because he's t- making everything about sex, about Jesus, which mm-hmm. I find, and I will be honest, I'm probably going to look pained the rest of this podcast because I actually find this very viscerally difficult to do, to mm-hmm. even talk about things in the way that he does because I actually find it very, very offensive because mm-hmm. what he's like, and I'm going to say something because I'm, I'm using his analogy that I actually find very difficult to say. Mm-hmm. He's talking about how uh, women's sexuality mirrors how Christ fanned the flames uh, through affection and romance, but that's not actually where his analogy would go. Mm-hmm. If he actually thinks that this is the analogy, that the we, the analogy is that sex um, and specifically how women experience arousal during sex, like mirrors us and Christ, then it should be that Christ is performing foreplay, right? And again, I find that really hard to say. Mm-hmm. But Butler's, this is why Butler's book is getting so much backlash. Like he talks about mm-hmm. rivers of semen and rivers yes. of life. Well, he talks about rivers of life, but insinuating that they're semen and talks about how the Holy Spirit is Christ's ejaculate. Yeah. Like it's, it's really yeah, quite... we're gonna, we're gonna no, get like, into I, that. I, and yeah. I do want to say, I find this really offensive mm-hmm. um, just as someone who... I, I just, yeah, I, I find that really difficult. Mm-hmm. But this is the problem, is they he talks about this, and I think that the reason that he mixes this up is because his metaphor is so bad that it's mm-hmm. so offensive to say Christ is performing foreplay. Yeah. You know, like, that's, that's just not okay. But instead of saying, hey, maybe my metaphor isn't right, he, mm-hmm. sa- he just changes it and once again erases women's sexuality and makes it all about romance again. Because that's what happens every single time. Yeah. We start talking about women and sex, and they're like, oh, flowers. You know, we start talking about women and sex. Oh, read a book together. Women and sex. No, women are just allowed to be sexual. And sex is not always about romance. Mm -hmm. Like, romance is something that happens in the relationship outside of sex. Like, it happens during sex, too. Sure. But it isn't just how women get aroused. It's not like you can just... Well, I think the way they talk about it is like romance is the price that men pay to get her willing to let him have intercourse. Exactly. And so it's like her actual sexual experience is not part of the equation. And I think that they they get they get mistaken with the whole swooning thing for mm-hmm. arousal. Mm-hmm. Swooning is not the same thing as arousal. You might get your wife to swoon by giving her chocolates and roses. I don't know. Yeah. You know, but like that's not the same thing as being like rar i want some you know what i mean <laughs> and this and, and this and and this is what i want to talk about with josh butler's book is there the central oh. problem that he is making and this is the thesis that i want to talk about for the rest of this podcast um because emerson Egrich does this too mm-hmm. to a certain extent and so do many many authors yes because i think this is a broader problem in the evangelical church is that Butler is seeing sex as an icon of the gospel yes but when you look carefully at what he means 
he doesn't actually mean mutual, intimate, pleasurable for both sexual experience that men and women share. No. What he means is male-centric sex. He means a man is having intercourse and he's using a woman to do it. And that's like the gospel. Yeah. Like genuinely, genuinely. That's what it is. So I want to read you a couple of quotes that kind of summarize this. I I won't belabor this too much because it'll make Rebecca's head explode. It's just my blood pressure. But just just so that y'all know what we're talking about, because this is why the book got so... So oh my can't. gosh i'm sorry i can see the quotes that we're about to read okay so yeah. just take deep breaths here we go and what and deep what <laughs> do you want to do it just I'll, I'll this is such a bad quote and what deeper form of self-giving is there than sexual union where particularly for the husband he pours out his very presence not only upon but within his wife so we're saying here that the best form of self so women women Yes. What he's saying is the most sacrificial thing a man can do is ejaculate on top of and inside of you. Yes. That's what that's like, am I crazy? No, that's that what that is, means. That is what his he's saying. pours out his very presence, not only upon, but within his wife. It's like, I'm not only going to ejaculate on you, I'm going to ejaculate in you. And that's me being giving. Like, what the... <laughs> I know, and this is the whole problem, is that oh. he's, he's defining sex in terms of generosity and hospitality. So those are the two aspects aspects of sex. Men are generous as they yeah. orgasm. So they are generously giving their ejaculate to their wife. And she is being hospitable. And in receiving that. the ejaculate. She is receiving it. Um, so here is a, a, a description of that. And again, quoting Butler. Back in the wedding suite, the bride embraces her most intimate guest on the threshold of her dwelling place and welcomes him into the sanctuary of her very self. She gladly receives the warmth of his... <laughs> I'm sorry. <clears throat> she gladly... <laughs> She gladly receives the warmth of his presence and accepts the sacrificial offering he bestows upon the altar within her most holy place. And there Can you, been- I'm sorry, no, 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 no. Can you imagine going to get a pap smear mm-hmm. and having the gynecologist just be like, okay, I'm about to enter the speculum into your most holy place. We've almost well, reached the altar. Yes. Um, right now, my uh, Q-tip is scraping the altar of your most holy place so we can see if there's any un, un you know, yes. unregular, mis- not regular cells on your altar. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like, it's disgusting to you. It that, really like, is. It's really bizarre. It's like, uh, uh, the best part, though, is with him calling the vagina the most holy well, place. Well, we're not even sure. Is it the vagina or is it the cervix? No, no, it seems like the the cervix is the altar. I do think it makes, I think it makes sense that the cervix being the altar. But the funniest thing is, everyone on, tw- a bunch of people on Twitter were saying, does he realize that the priest was only allowed to enter the most holy place once a year? Yes. <laughs> Exactly. Okay. So this and 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 people have written a lot of critiques of, yeah. of Josh Butler's book um, for many reasons: theological critiques, yeah. uh, the fact that it it um, really does sexualize God in in a not okay way, um, the fact that yeah, it, it does, it, it's not that it sexualizes God; is that it fetishizes God? Yes. Because yes. talking about sex and God, that's perfectly fine. We have stuff like that in the Bible, but it's the fetishization of weird parts yeah. of both male ejaculate and the Trinity that I find very, very uncomfortable. Yeah, because the Holy Spirit is equated with ejaculate. Ejaculate. It's 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 really problematic. Um, People have said, you know, the the actual the, the actual metaphor is not sex itself; it's marriage, the marriage relationship, and so this is anyway. It's just it's all very... yeah. So the metaphor in the Bible is not yeah. sex; it's actually marriage and the consummation of marriage, but not just like getting 
Yes. Yeah. So there, and and then uh, there, there's just been a lot of critiques. I'm going to link to some of them. They are very thoughtful. A yeah. lot of people. This actually is quite offensive to me because a lot of people have bemoaned the Twitter mob, which has gone after Joshua Butler, and they haven't realized the Twitter mob is filled with women with PhDs. Yep. Who are very very learned in now, these areas. People are like way more educated than us. Even we in have areas we have where... New Testament scholars. We have history scholars. Like Rebecca Mui is a PhD oh, candidate yeah. who has done a lot of work on post colonialism and on. Um, a lot of sexual metaphors throughout mm-hmm. history that have been used in domination. Like it's, it's just, it, there's been some wonderful stuff written. I will mm-hmm. link to that today. I want to focus on something on, on Laura Robinson's critiques. And we're going to yeah. be reading a lot of Laura Robinson's critiques. She wrote, <laughs> you guys need to, if you like this podcast, you need Please. to subscribe to Laura Robinson's and, sub stack. And I, I want you all after you're done this, go get a glass of wine, get a cup of tea, whatever is your cup of tea. Um, <laughs> snuggle up on a chair and she has written 15,000 words on Beautiful Union, so no one else has to read it. That mm-hmm. was her goal. That was her goal. I will read the whole thing. I will critique the whole thing, so no one else has to read this. Yeah, that's what and she said. We're not going to critique the whole thing. No, Laura said, I will critique the whole thing, so no one else needs to read it. Yeah, but I do want to read to you some of what she said, um, specifically about male-centric sex, because yeah. I find this very problematic, that we are seeing sex from such a male lens. And the, interestingly, Josh Butler... Who is who? Who's critiqued his critic, saying that we're just afraid of using um, the word prudes. It's so funny. Yeah, he says everyone they're just prudes. They just don't like talking about sex. And we're like, no, 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 no. You're calling the vagina the most holy place. We're like, just say vagina, buddy. Just say like <laughs> vagina, cervix, clitoris, uterus, refractory period, orgasm. I don't care. I'm sitting here doing this. With my mom, for pity's sake. Yes, it's uncomfortable. Sure, but you can't call me a prude. I did an orgasm course with my mom. Like. Oh my freaking goodness, okay? Like, the only other people who are as comfortable talking about sex with their parents that I know are the people who moved here from Europe, okay? Like, I mean, yeah, let's shout be out honest to all here. Your I mean, just, but, ugh. yeah, and so, and so the critique has been that we we are uncomfortable with real words. No, what we're uncomfortable with is it's all calling the Holy Spirit ejaculate, for and, pity's sake. Again, this is a hard point And for we're me. very uncomfortable with the idea of rivers of semen and of swimming and rivers of, anyway. And, just, and, and I do want to say, I do want to say, as we're getting into some of this, I think we're, one of the things, one of the things that bothers me about the whole beautiful union thing, one of the many things, is just this this emphasis on semen, which may be because this guy, maybe he is just really innocent to a lot of the stuff around that that often happens in the world. Maybe he doesn't actually know anything about the the role of semen and how it's used to do like degrade women in pornography. But it's pretty common. Mm-hmm. And so if he's that ignorant about what the current state is of mm-hmm. the world, then he shouldn't be writing a book on sex in case he accidentally makes issues like yeah. this. But like the idea that it's sacrificial to ejaculate onto a woman. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the the idea that it's oh what a good man that would ejaculate onto it or like there's nothing there's nothing wrong when you're having sex of course you can ejaculate that's not a problem but to fetishize ejaculating onto a woman yeah like and to fetishize that part of it and I, and again fetishizing means something different than just enjoying as it's happening right yeah. we're talking about this man wrote a book and compared mm-hmm. it to the to Christ releasing his spirit yeah and this book was widely promoted by the Gospel Coalition. Yeah. They have tried to step away from it now, but it was originally promoted by them. It was put up on their website. Um, it was part of the Keller Center for Apologetics. Mm-hmm. Um, Tim Keller, the organization Tim Keller founded. Um, it it 
is put up by Waterbrook Multnomah. They paid a lot of money for this book. So this is this is major evangelical establishment book. Yeah. Um, and it's really bad. And yeah. so I want to read something that Laura Robinson wrote. Oh, yeah, and again, sorry, we'll get to we Laura. Will, we will put the link to um, her series because it just is excellent. But here's what she says. Generosity at its highest point is here described as giving your penis to a woman by putting it in her vagina. It is also defined as giving your semen to a woman by ejaculating it into her vagina. The role of a woman is not defined as generosity. It is described as hospitality. It is joyful and happy reception of the gift, which is semen. <laughs> this is analogous to Christ sending the Holy Spirit, which the church receives, and the Spirit of God filling the temple to be with his people. The obvious thing to point out here is that male ejaculation is completely divinized in this. Women are treated as buildings or communities, but men are treated as divine. This inflates the importance of men, male bodies, and male pleasure, subtly insists on hierarchy, and erases a role for women during sex beyond receiving the sacralized penis and semen. This is all utterly bizarre and probably disturbing for most readers. Yes. And then later she says this, by associating penises and semen with gifts, divine inspiration, the presence of God, and sacrifices, this has the effect of making inhospitality, i.e. women not wanting sex, seem more or less irrational. And I actually want to read yeah, the, the passage excerpt. from Josh Butler's book here. Here's what Butler says. Hospitality, on the other hand, can turn inward to an unwelcoming posture, refusing to receive the other's presence. And remember that presence has been constantly used as a euphemism for semen in right. this book. Declining to prepare a space for them, shutting the door on intimacy and locking the bolt behind you. Over time, the warmth from the honeymoon can become a churlish cold shoulder. Women are known for having a stronger tendency to struggle with this one. So he's setting up women to be critiqued for not wanting to have, to have his presence upon and within her. And remember, if we go back to that original diagram that we showed you at the beginning of this podcast of the two different models of mm -hmm. sex, which model are we talking about yeah. when we are focusing on his climax being an act of generosity. Well, and what, which one are we focusing on when the focus for her is hospitality? Again, ho you're having to convince her to allow him to have sex with her. Mm -hmm. That means she's not aroused. Like, yeah. the thing is, <clears throat> okay, this is one of those situations where I want to say things, but I am just so acutely aware that my mother is in the room. <laughs> but here's the thing, okay. Men <laughs> who have experienced very aroused women <laughs> are aware that you don't have to convince them to have sex. Okay? Mm -hmm. Like, let's be clear here. Women who are highly aroused do not need to be warned, please don't be churlish. Don't be cold shoulder. They're like, they're not cold. They're hot. Mm -hmm. They're like, yeah, they're, they're ravenous. Okay? Women who are aroused want to have sex. Mm -hmm. And so the whole focus of how men are generous, gen they always want sex. Men are always willing to have sex. Look how generous the man is. The man is willing to ejaculate on top of his wife. Mm -hmm. He'll ejaculate anywhere. He's so generous. Yeah. And, again, and then the woman, she's she needs to be hospitable because she can be not hospitable. And we know that women yeah. don't like sex. And, 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 and as, as Laura says, there is a footnote that consent matters. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't really delve into this much. And so let me just read up, read her summary of this. By framing semen as a gift or a sacrifice, women's agency in sex, to say nothing of pregnancy and birth, mm -hmm. is eliminated. Women are the spaces where sex happens. They are not framed as participants in yes. sex. They are the temples where sacrifice happens. 
And I love this one too. Okay. Yeah. So again, here's Laura. The primary problem in these passages is the generosity, at least for men, has been cleverly re- redefined as not generosity. Generosity in sex is having your own orgasm. <laughs> Sacrifice is the act of doing something extremely fun. Giving is stimulating all your nerves that feel terrific when you stimulate them. <laughs> Hospitality for women is willingness to receive a gift, which is their husbands having fun. Yes, exactly. It's like he's such a nice guy for having an orgasm. Yeah. yeah. Okay, then we go on to something a little bit awkward, (laughs) where Laura starts to ask the question, and this is an awkward question. Yeah. Does Joshua Butler actually understand female orgasm? Because when you look through the entire book, there is so much about the male climax. Like the male climax literally is the icon of the gospel. Yeah. But is there a female climax? He does talk in that section where he quotes me, he does talk about the importance of sex feeling good for women. Mm -hmm. But But remember, he goes right back to romance. Like when, as soon as it's in Joshua's words and not in, you know, your words, it goes back to women need to be romanced. Mm -hmm. It it goes back to the idea of once again, women don't want to have sex. They have to be romanced into it. They have to have the flames stoked versus the idea of the flames are stoked. So now what do we do? Mm -hmm. It's like we never, we never get past the flames being stoked. We never get to the point that, you know, we actually do something with the excitement. Okay. So in the book... Um, which I have as well. Mm-hmm. I've taken a look at it. Yep. Um, and Laura has massively yeah. l- read this. This is the only place that we can find um, where female orgasm might be being talked about. Again, yeah. it's difficult to tell because he does use all these euphemisms. Yeah. But because I, I would actually argue he's actually a little more prudish when it comes to women. Yeah. So, so why do you want to read this? Oh, sure. Out? I'll read it. So this is Butler's words. Orgasm ideally occurs at the height of physical union. Its ecstasy is shared between lover and beloved. Okay. Okay. I'm sorry. Can we just take a pause? Lover and beloved. So the one who's doing the action and the one who's receiving it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had never realized that one before. That I have a that could be a whole other podcast. Okay, <laughs> at the cl- sorry, it's ecstasy is shared between lover and beloved at the climactic point where they can bring forth love. Okay, the unitive and procreative dynamics of sex are most powerfully charged in this consummation of one flesh toward the generation of flesh and bone. All three persons are proleptically present in the moment of union, with the second ready to proceed forth from the first, carrying his life within her, and the third ready to proceed forth from them both, conceived through their union. I'm sorry, but... Okay, first of all, there is just a basic misunderstanding of how babies are conceived if he thinks that the baby is present. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> like, first of all, like, yeah. we we all know that you're most likely to get pregnant having sex before you've even ovulated, mm-hmm. right? Like, we all know this, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's the 24 hours before you've ovulated. So, like, there actually isn't even an egg available in the fallopian tube yet. Yeah. And anyway, this is just, there's so the sperm, many. The little sperm, they got to swim and they take <sighs> a while. Anyway, but see, yeah. this is what happens when we try to make things poetic that are, like, basic facts of life yeah it's he's focusing on all things that he likes he's not actually focusing on what's true and because of that he's totally erasing women anyway okay so here's laura's conclusion of this because she's looked at this in detail and this is the only place that it seems to talk about a woman's orgasm in this entire book remember this entire and that was entire book about sex and if you're listening you're like i don't even remember hearing yeah you didn't hear it okay like there's nothing really there so here is what laura says 
So the moment of orgasm here for the man is figured accurately as the moment where he ejaculates. Yes. The moment of orgasm for the woman, if it is figured at all, is also figured as the moment where the man (laughs) ejaculates. That tricky word ideally is extremely confusing because it suggests that this is not always exactly when what happens. But it seems like the most plausible reading of the image is that usually during sex, a woman has an orgasm when a man has an orgasm. Yeah, exactly. That's not what actually happens. No. The if you look at our our sexual response cycle again, you know the most the most common way if a woman is going to have an orgasm, she's usually going to do it before the man does. Yeah, and the reason is because after the guy has an orgasm, you know what happens? All of the it's hormones and all of the nice little dopamine things—they're all saying you want to go to sleep yes. now. You did it. Good job. And so it's time of, for bed. And so a lot of guys will figure, well, I'll have, I'll have, you know, we'll do the intercourse thing. And if she doesn't reach orgasm, then I'll finish her later. But then what happens is he's just obviously tired and she's like, no, it's okay. Don't worry about me. Yeah. And, and this is the common thing. And then how women are often left hanging. And so if a woman is going to have an orgasm, she's supposed to go first. Yeah. <laughs> like that's the most common way that it happens. And I'm not saying that it has to happen that way. But we're just saying that statistically, if it's going to happen, it is most likely to happen that way. Also spontaneous, and Laura quotes us at length from The Great Sex Rescue talking about how many Christian sex manuals really made spontaneous orgasm, or sorry, simultaneous simultaneous orgasm. orgasm the, the ideal, and even though that isn't actually what is common and most... Isn't even necessary. Yes. I will also say, I'll be very honest, like, what a lot of people have found, too, is that, like, because I've, I've read so much literature on orgasms at this point. I've read so many studies on orgasm. Mm-hmm. But the idea of focusing on simultaneous orgasm also often means that she only has one, mm-hmm. two, right? Like, a yeah. lot of the time, if you're focusing on simultaneous orgasm, then she doesn't reach it. Mm-hmm. Then you're always left hanging versus if she just gets a couple mm-hmm. and then you finish while she's kind of riding that wave down. Mm-hmm. Things work well. Not only that, you actually have more orgasms per sexual encounter, which yeah. I think is a pretty good metric. Exactly. And so so this it's just a very strange paragraph. Laura spends a lot of time on this. She goes into then the history of how the clitoris hasn't even been researched until the last you know 20 to yeah. 30 years. Um, how women's route to orgasm has largely been ignored in most literature. She, yeah. she goes into this at great detail. And then this is her conclusion. The best case scenario is that no one noticed that women actually usually don't orgasm at the same time as men during sex. And no one involved in bringing this book to print thought that an entire half of the population's experience of sex was not worth getting correct because they're not the important half. Yeah. But I just kept keep getting stuck on that little word ideally. Ideally, unless something is going wrong, unless there's a problem, the way this is supposed to go is that women orgasm through penetration just when their male partner does. Yeah. And that's just not what happens. I will say that Laura's theory of what's happening makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Um, And we're going to get a little graphic here for a second. (laughs) Okay, but what often happens if we go back to that sexual arousal chart, right, is that women get excited and then more and more aroused. And what we've we've heard from many, many women is that they end up getting quite aroused and they never actually get over the edge. Mm -hmm. And so what often happens is if a woman is aroused and a man is approaching climax and he starts to go a little more intensely because he's almost, you know, ready, then she might start to kind of get more into it and moan a little bit more. And then he's done and he's like, was that good? And she's like, well, I guess, yeah, because I was aroused, but she doesn't get 
the flood of happy mm-hmm. hormones in the same mm-hmm. way. And a lot of a lot of women, a lot of women fake orgasm. And when's she gonna fake it? She's gonna fake it right as he does, so that he doesn't feel disappointed, right? Mm-hmm. Like and and also there's other things where maybe she knows then she doesn't want to lie, but he's she loves him and she wants to make him feel good and so yeah yeah I got there and she kind of fakes it and there's just a lot of options about why a woman might seem like she's having a really good time and orgasming always exactly as he ejaculates Mm -hmm. um that all really come down to a lack of um a lack of sexual education which is really common in this area but does preclude someone from being qualified to write a sex book yeah, and that's that's the problem because when you look at this book, women's experience is largely missing. And mm-hmm. I wrote a long thread on this um, based on our research, but I don't think you can write a sex book without mentioning the orgasm gap. Like, how can you write a book that's focusing on on how a man ejaculating is iconic of the gospel mm-hmm. and never mention that in over half a of Christian couples, she's not orgasming. I think the only way that you could do it is if you presented such a good example of what healthy sexuality should look like that the couples who have that orgasm gap would realize it and open their eyes like, oh, wait a second, she's supposed to enjoy it? But that's not what's happening happening here. Yeah, like I think that if you're someone who, you don't mention the orgasm gap because you're just talking about what sex should look like, I think that's fine. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're giving enough information where you're like, here's what female sexuality is. And if this isn't happening, then, like, figure out how to unlock this. Mm-hmm. You know, like, th- th- I think that kind of thing, that could work. But this is so far from that, it's mm-hmm. not even funny. Yeah, and he also doesn't mention sexual pain. No. So, you know. Of course we- he doesn't. That's very inhospitable. <laughs> right, right. How dare women? Yes. It's very you inhospitable. Know, Twenty about 23% of women experience vaginismus, primary sexual pain. Um, 30, I believe the overall number is 35%. Again, Joanna needs to be here because I memorize oh certain gosh, stats, but I'm not the stats person. And honestly, the. 35% this- of women have had sexual pain in our yep. in our survey because a lot of them it's postpartum. Yeah. So it's not necessarily vaginismus. Hey, that's me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so this is something which affects over a third of women. And it's not mentioned. No. Um, Except to chastise women for being churlish, which when you don't mention pain, but mm-hmm. then you tell women don't be inhospitable, you know what happens? Women in pain grit their teeth and bear through it. Yeah. That's what happens. Yeah. Because, it, yeah. because no one said, hey, pain is an actual thing. Yeah. Evangelical women suffer from pain at a much higher rate than general population. If you're having pain, that's not normal. That's not okay. Please mm-hmm. seek help. Go see a pelvic floor physiotherapist. Read The Great Sex Rescue. Figure out some of uh, the reasons why evangelical women have higher rates of sexual pain. And you know what one of the biggest reasons is? Is the obligation sex message. Yep. When you tell women you need to have sex or else you're not being hospitable. hospitable, like guess what? Vaginismus rates go yeah. go up. And and so this is this is a big problem. Um and I, I think this is what I have found so uh, disappointing about the conversation around the book Beautiful Union is that when women started to point out that this wasn't okay, and we were all coming at it from different points of view, you yeah. know, like there were the people coming at it from the theology point of view about the they difference. They had a lot to the say. The difference between allegory and metaphor and how you can't You can't, you can't combine mix, the mix two. Them up. And- um, you know, Rebecca, when was coming at it from a historical perspective, 
we were coming at it more from a women's ex- from actual what the experience. Heck well, we were coming at it from a women's experience of sexuality. Yes. Um, perspective. Yes. And all of these perspectives are really important. They're yeah. all like, and, and so it's not that our critique is the only one that matters. Oh, gosh, no. Um, and so again, I am going to link to more, the more theological. But it's just that critiques. we can't do the other ones because we because are. We're not theologians. Yeah. But we have studied this. And, you know, you said something um, in an interview with Baptist News for something else that yeah. I thought was really good. Do you want to read sure, your I'll words? Sure, I'll just read my, my yeah. words. What I've been thinking over is how all these cases and where, like, Twitter gets mad about things because men overlooked women, right? Mm-hmm. Women were crying out that they were being hurt. The quote-unquote Twitter mobs, though, were chastised for not having the ability to be reasonable and unemotional about this. But that's a privilege men have that women simply don't. These issues surrounding male-centric sexuality and leadership are cerebral for men. They are visceral for women. It's easy to debate differing opinions when you're not the one bearing the cost of those theological differences. It's easy to debate modesty when you haven't had a fully grown man find you a stumbling block before you even got your first period. It's easy to overlook abuse cover-ups when you yourself are not at risk of systemic, quote-unquote, God-sanctioned abuse. Men are not more reasonable than women because they are able to disconnect emotion from these discussions. They are able to disconnect emotionally from these discussions because they are not affected by the outcome. Their ease with which they can have these debates without it causing distress, rather than being seen as evidence of intellectual actualization, should be recognized for what it is, privilege of not having to experience the real-world ramifications." Yeah, and I think that is what's happening here. Yeah. When you think about sex as entirely about his climax, (laughs) and that is the way that we are going to talk about sex and focus sex, that is going to affect women. Yeah. And when your whole way of seeing sex is this generosity, hospitality, Mm -hmm. and how rape is is a... is a, is, you're not being generous, then you're being selfish, and that's why it's, it's, it's just the, the disgusting kind of hoops that have to get it's, jumped through. It's really, it's a, really gross. It's really, really a problem. And women reacted to this viscerally because we've been written out. Yeah. Sex is something which happens to our bodies, and yet our, our experience is largely written out. Yeah. And that one paragraph seems to be the only place where her orgasm yeah. is, is, seems to be talked about. Like, he does talk about orgasm in other places, but it's like, it looks like it could just be his orgasm. Yeah. Like, it really is so euphemistic. And he's criticizing people for um not wanting to talk about sex and we're like and, no we just want you to say vagina please just say vagina. and that we're prudes and please. it's like no we have a problem because we're looking at the book we don't have a clue what you're talking about yeah like we don't know whether you're talking about female orgasm here we don't know if you're talking about the, like we no. don't know because everything is euphemistic yeah. and i i i dare i dare anyone to listen to this podcast and tell us that we're prudes who don't yeah. like what does he say he actually says that we don't like direct language yep we are saying, can you please not call my vagina the most holy place, Josh Butler? Hey, Josh Butler, please mm-hmm. don't call my vagina my most and holy you know place. What? I, I actually had a lot of sympathy for Josh. I did March, too. And I did a number of Twitter threads where... I did too! Where, where we said like, hey guys, Josh had a lot of people who failed him on this. Yeah, and including the Gospel Coalition. And, um, you know, they were throwing Josh under the bus when really what Josh was teaching was very much in line with what the Gospel Coalition does it's just they got called he got called out on it and and they cut him loose and i didn't think that was okay i thought that that this was bigger than josh butler and i felt like he was being being made a scapegoat the problem now um is that he's going on all these podcasts defending his book and he's not listening to the critiques 
Yep. Like if this was truly a case of he didn't have the checks and balances in place, then he should realize, okay, I just need to kind of ride this one out and just let this one go and just not talk about it and just let my publisher do what they will, but I'm not going to do much. But instead he like quit his job at his church to to become more focused on this book. He's going everywhere talking Mm -hmm. about it. Like at what point do you just not like Josh, you're allowed to not be the Holy Spirit semen guy. Like you're allowed to just be like, that was a weird time for me. That was a weird era in my life. And I'm moving past it. Like we're all like, Josh, please just leave the semen talk. Like just please do. This is all everyone wants is for us never to have to think about Christ's penetrating spirit upon and within us ever again. Like that's all any of us want. Please. Please, it, it would do the world a whole lot of good. But, you know, he, he's also saying that this book was written, and I think he describes it as your, for your average college, college student who listens to Ariana Grande and watches Netflix like, and, and isn't a Christian, and so, and, but wants to talk about sex in direct language, in direct ways. And so he sees this book as ministering to younger generations who may be really involved in the hookup culture, but they want something, they want something more meaningful. And so he's trying to show them something which is more meaningful. I do think sex is more meaningful than that. I think there's a lot that we can say about how sex is meant to be sacred and how sex is meant to be intimate. And that's a beautiful thing to talk about. This is not the way to do it. No, appealing to pornographic tropes to make God seem sexier and, and seem kind and I of pornographically shocking. I don't think he was trying to do that. I don't to think be he fair. meant to. I think he did. I think he did. I don't think he meant to. Yeah, no, but, I but, fully agree. But that's actually to. part of the problem. And I don't think that he understood that what he was talking about with semen was a pornographic trope. Mm-hmm. I, I, maybe maybe I'm being naive. But, we are. But I, I I truly want to give him the benefit yes. of the doubt here. Yes. And that I I I I actually don't think that he did realize that. No, I I hope he didn't. But. You know what? You can't write about sex without realizing that. Like, yeah. I, and this is something which we've encountered a lot in the last little bit is we've talked to men who spend their life teaching on sexuality and talking about sexuality mm-hmm. who don't know what vaginismus is. Yeah, who don't, who just don't understand even the most basic parts of women's sexual experiences growing up. There has to be a level where if you're going to talk about sex, you need to talk about it well, because this stuff really matters to women. Like women, and and I'm not saying that it doesn't matter to men. It's just with men, 95% of men are going to orgasm. They're not going to experience sexual pain in the same way. Um, You know, they don't have the same issues. Women are very vulnerable during sex. Mm -hmm. We can experience sexual pain and we do experience sexual pain at very large numbers in the evangelical church. We don't often orgasm. We're commonly victims of marital rape. These things matter. And when you don't get them right, that impacts women. And so we're just asking for men who are going to take it upon themselves to write about marriage and sex to not do so unless they're going to be educated in it first and they're going to humble themselves to realize just because I have had sex doesn't make me an expert. And let me tell you, for years I did this too. Full full disclosure. I mean, when I started to write about sex, I was mostly doing it from my own experience. Like back in 2008, 2009, 2010. And it was from listening to people in the comments. It was from reading more and more peer-reviewed literature that I realized that my response, like my responsive libido does not mean that every woman has a responsive libido. <laughs> my experience 
is my experience, but it is not everyone's experience. And so if I'm going to write on this, it is really important for me to educate myself on other people's experiences. And you know what? I did that. <laughs> and we've done these huge surveys and I have, I have taken stuff out of print that I wrote before when I wasn't qualified. And we need to recognize that this stuff is important because real people are getting hurt. And this isn't something you can just take lightly let alone what this does theologically. Mm. But please, if you're going to take it upon yourself to teach on sex, do it well. Educate yourself. Now, I do want to address something that I'm sure some people are going to be feeling. Okay. okay. So we're going to be saying, doesn't it seem a little bit mean to talk about whether or not these guys actually understand female orgasm stuff? Mm-hmm. And I do understand that sentiment. I fully do. This is uncomfortable. Like, and, yep. it is, and it's uncomfortable as a person who's, who's talking about it too. My question is just this. What, what is worse? Critiquing the natural and logical conclusion to be drawn from someone's writing or writing a book that completely ignores an entire half of the population mm-hmm. and coerces them into sex they don't want to have? Yeah. Like, we have to be honest here. And what I, I will just say one thing is that when I was doing my research for the orgasm course, which again, brought me to all sorts of very interesting peer-reviewed studies, mm-hmm. goodness gracious. Um, but but a, there was one thing, I was just so curious. And so I went and I actually looked at the sex advice on places like Men's Health, like the secular sources where guys mm-hmm. get sex advice. You know what it's all like? It's just random dudes bragging about how many orgasms they can give women. Yeah. Like, they're all things like, you want to make your women have an orgasm? Well, I made mine have seven, so here's how mine had seven. Like, mm-hmm. it's all stuff like that. And we do not recommend going it's there. Like, I mean, some of our advice, no, some of our advice is genuinely yeah. very good. I, yeah. I, I actually know, if you're looking for sex advice to help your, your, your wife, like, mm-hmm. we have our orgasm course for women and for men, and if you're looking for more other specific things, I actually don't not recommend places mm-hmm. like Men's Health. They often will promote things that I find that we think are very damaging, like watching pornography together. But mm-hmm. in terms of the actual tech technique a lot of their stuff was pretty it, yeah. it's in line with the research stuff that i was reading from sex therapists yeah. and from phds yeah. right because they're getting their stuff from actual peer-reviewed yeah. sources unlike the christian world yeah because in the christian world when you read sex advice what you hear is you know she's not gonna want to yeah but here's what you can do to, to get her so that she is willing to let you yeah and what kind of a view of sex is that we need to get to a point where men in the Christian world don't think it's acceptable to write sex advice that makes it sound like they don't know how to bring a woman to climax. Mm-hmm. Because when we accept that kind of advice that erases women, regardless of what their actual experience or actual knowledge is, when they write advice that mm-hmm. erases women and discounts their orgasm and makes it likely that they won't reach it, mm-hmm. we're damaging women. And it's ridiculous that... Like, this is understood yeah. in the secular world, yeah. and it's completely looked over by the Christian yeah. one. We are normalizing women being erased. We are mm. normalizing women not reaching orgasm. And, and because... We, and please, church, please, let's get to the point where that's no longer acceptable. Where it isn't acceptable to talk about sex without talking about what women experience. And it isn't acceptable to talk about sex where we focus it entirely on a man's climax during intercourse. Because sex should be something, as we talk about in The Great Sex Rescue, that is mutual, that is intimate, that is pleasurable for both. And that needs to be the baseline. 
And it's not the baseline right now. Right now, we have this phenomenon of male-centric sex across almost all of our resources. And we're just asking that to change. And that shouldn't be an unreasonable request. And I hope that the Christian world will listen. And why don't we end it with our own piece of advice here, okay? Okay. So if you want to turn a woman on sexually, then you should actually learn how to turn a woman on yeah. sexually. Just figure out how to do it. Like, you can do it, guys. Like, you just can do, do it. it. And thank you very much yeah. for joining us on the Bear Marriage Podcast. And we will be back next week for another edition that hopefully will be a little bit happier, <laughs> a little bit less controversial. And with even... Actually, I know what we're doing next week. I think we're going to be sharing some more of our orgasm findings. Some really so, cool yeah, stuff So, yeah, so if you're Joanna hearing found. us say, like, just do it. Just figure it out. And you're like, yeah, but it's difficult. We'll tune in next week. We'll talk we'll about orgasm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Bye-bye. See you later.